You're listening to Popcorn Podcast with Lee and Tim, and this week we're talking The Witches and BG's How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, as well as all the latest movie and trailer news. I'm Timmy Fland, movie buff. And I'm Lee Livingstone, entertainment journalist. And we love to talk all things movies. And this week, we're going to kick off with our review of The Witches. Which reimagines Roald Dahl's classic story for a new generation. The movie follows a young orphan boy staying with his grandma at a fancy seaside resort where the Grand High Witch has also gathered her fellow witches from around the world to share her plans for turning all the children into mice. Now, this is directed by one of my all-time favourite filmmakers, Robert Zemeckis. You may recognise him as the director of Back to the Future, Forrest Gump, Polar Express, and of course, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He also co-wrote the screenplay with Kenya Barris and Guillermo del Toro. So he's no stranger to doing the live-action hybrids, is he? No, he's not. He kind of went on this bit of a uh, uh, distraction with the Polar Express and... Beowulf, I think, you know, Mm. about a decade or so ago, and they were kind of, you know, give or take. But the live-action hybrid, yeah, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Like, this is his place to play in, isn't it? he knows what he's doing. The movie stars Anne Hathaway, Octavia Spencer, Stanley Tucci, and Jazia Bruno in his first film role. Now, let's talk about the the story here. Mm. It's a well-known story. Roald Dahl wrote this in the early 80s, I think, and then we had the film version in 1990 and now this one you know 30 years later so it's a long time between drinks Mm. but the story is quite timeless isn't it about a young boy finding his place in the world but in the thick of it he's kind of woven into this chaos of being you know affected by witches and everything Mm -hmm. that they want to do with kids and and you know how much they hate them etc i mean it's a kid's movie but it's quite a scary kid's movie isn't it that's roald dahl's uh signature oh definitely there's something in his stories for adults as much for kids but you almost think it kind of goes more the adult side because his stories are quite dark and sinister and Mm -hmm. a little twisted and this one certainly feels that way just in terms of its premise no one likes someone who hates kids so (laughs) I guess it comes with a preconceived notion that it's going to be a bit dark. When we were talking about this movie in the lead up to it remember I was very worried about whether Anne Hathaway was going to be scary enough you know because Angelica Mm -hmm. Houston played the Grand High Witch in the first movie in the 90s. And she was quite scary. She's just naturally quite um, intimidating, isn't she? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think Anne Hathaway's entrance here was absolutely fantastic. I was, like, hooked because I had same concerns about her. Mm. But her intro into the movie was just bang on and you went for this weird, wacky ride with her and her turn as the Grand High Witch. When you say intro, you mean when she's first introduced, when she first arrives at the seaside resort? Yes. I did not like that. Oh, okay. Talk to me. Why? Her accent was so distracting. What accent was she doing? Okay. So, good call. I think the accent changed a few times throughout. <laughs> Yeah, I I couldn't actually tell you who she was trying to replicate, to be honest, now I think of it. But the campness of the accent didn't bother me. Like, it was really over the top and a bit silly, and I think that's fine for the movie. It suited that kind of film, but I just really could not understand her a lot of the time. And then when her mouth expands and she becomes more demon-like and a bit scarier, it was even harder to understand what she was saying. Yeah, because her tone went deeper, didn't it? Mm. It was that the sound design kind of messed with her audibility 
of her words, yeah. I thought that was a shame. Yeah, it was a little bit of a shame. What did you think about the character design of, of her as the Grand High Witch in, in itself? Well, there's been a bit of controversy about the um, three-fingered design because mm. that wasn't in the original. And no. the face opening up really wide and really scary with the teeth and everything. I quite liked that aspect. I found mm-hmm. the three fingers and the hand thing very distracting, especially when she was pointing so much. It mm-hmm. felt like she was flipping the bird. <laughs> All the time. Like, it felt like a middle finger every single time. and I didn't quite get it. I guess physically, the witches all use their hands quite a lot. Mm. So, did you think it was a little bit distracting, I suppose? Or or the impact of those movements was lost because the, the physicality wasn't there. They only had three fingers. I think some of the choices that they made in the character design, I wondered why they'd gone to make those kind of choices. Because it didn't really mm. need to be done, I think, in this film. The witches are kind of grounded, even though they're witches or demons or whatever you want to call them. The original movie was grounded a bit more in reality. I guess. Mm-hmm. And this one is was going for a more fantastical vibe. But sometimes it felt a little bit like, hey, we're going to add these modern flourishes in this great special effect just because we can now, because it's modern technology. Look at us go. And then you yeah. wonder, but why did you do that? Because there was one in particular, which I don't want to spoil, but there's, there's a special effect that's been added and then you never saw it again. It was this big kind of bleh. And then you go, why didn't they do that again? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I think I do. I think I recall. Mm. I have to check that one offline <laughs> so, so I understand what you're talking about. But do you think that's kind of like a trope of how Robert Zemeckis stages and chooses to move the camera? That's always been a strength of his as a filmmaker in weaving effects, mm. how he moves the camera and making it talk to all the sound design and music. Do you think he was showing off from time to time in this film then? That's an interesting take. I don't know. Mm. You're right. He is, he's, he's good at it, definitely. The special effects were quite impressive. I love his way of shooting a film. So like, I kind of just lapped that up in all really? ways because mm. he was always challenging the way that he positioned the camera and how he shot his actors and mm. how he was telling the story. I mean, you've got characters that turn into mice at some point in the film. Mm. So, you know, you're kind of following their adventure and their perspective, but then also really positioning the witches and the Grand High Witch in particular in this position of stature and importance Mm. and menace Uh, so I think that he really used the sense of space beautifully and that lent so heavily into the gorgeous costume and production design in this movie as well speaking of the costumes they were really gorgeous but there were some interesting choices in filming there as well I mean there was one scene in particular where the grand high witch has to procure something out of her dress And it was this strange moment where she pulled back her dress and it was extreme close-up of Anne Hathaway's boob. Yeah. Did you find that strange? I thought it was going to be another Tara Reid nip-slip red carpet (laughs) moment, you know. (laughs) Like, are we going to see the Grand High Witch's nipple? Is that what's about to happen? But yeah, there was a lot of boob in that shot. Yeah, there was. I found it very distracting. I thought, ooh. Oh, I mean, this is a darker children's film for sure, but this has gone in a whole different direction now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe just, look, I, I can't relate to this, but d- don't women always put things in their bras? Like yes. always hide oh, things in there? Look, by all means, by all means, procure it from your bra, but do you need to pull back your dress so that your boob is exposed and then like extreme close-up shot of her breast i mean what was that she was very comfortable in her own skin so all power to the grand high witch there maybe (laughs) i think that's got more to do with roberts and meccas than it does with anne hathaway let me tell you (laughs) probably right can we just talk about the story and its structure i'd Mm. like to understand your position on this i found that this version took 
a little more care in having structure to the narrative and it made a lot more sense to me than Mm. the 1990 original because it was about 15 minutes longer so there was naturally more time to tell the story and then just to add on that and I'd love to hear your opinion I felt like that they really took time in establishing the characters of the little boy Mm -hmm. and his and his grandma him coming out of his shell and there was some they made a lot of effort to create that bond. So mm. then when all the chaos ensued, when the Grand High Witch and that conference was going on, you really felt that beautiful connection between the grandma and her grandson. Oh, absolutely. And that's all power to Octavia Spencer too. Completely mm. just a natural and gentle and calming influence in this film. And she was just so perfect opposite Jazia Bruno, who was very talented for such a young boy. The two of them together were just, Fantastic. The relationship was great to see evolve. And you're right. Yeah, they did take more time evolving that relationship and bringing a bit more of the depth to the characters, perhaps. But when you say it went on for like 15 minutes longer, why? Did you feel Mm. the ending went on for too long? Without spoiling anything, it was a quite different ending to the 1990. Mm. So perhaps it went on a bit longer, but I was more interested in it because it was trying to tell and say something a little bit different. See, I feel there's this thing that Hollywood films do at the moment. It seems to be a growing trend where you get the ending of the film and it's a nice place to leave things. But then, oh, no, wait, they're coming back for a little dance scene. Oh, no, wait, Mm. they're coming back for an extra credit scene. (laughs) Oh, no, wait, we're going to set up a sequel. Like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Yeah. So do you think it kind of felt more Return of the King with 15 endings, you know, that fade down, (laughs) fade back up? Maybe not to those extremities, but I I do feel you, though, Lee. I Mm. I do. It seems to be a growing trend at the moment. We're seeing it in a lot of films and... I mean, I'm a huge fan of Marvel and the whole end credit scenes and those little tidbits that they throw in there. But a lot more films are just doing it for the sake of it. And you think, oh, okay, the movie could have ended about 10 minutes ago. All right, Lisa, we're at that point of the review where we reveal our popcorn kernel Mm -hmm. score. What are you going to give The Witches? I really enjoyed it. After having torn apart Robert Zemeckis' close-up boob shots and Anne Hathaway's <laughs> accent, I actually really enjoyed the film. It's a lot of fun. It's dark. It's scary. But people who are familiar with the story will know that. And the good thing about Roald Dahl's stories is that they don't talk down to children, yeah. which makes for a much more entertaining film, I think. I'm going to give it three popcorn kernels. All right. Now, that's such a nice way of wrapping it up. I loved this movie so much. There was such a great sense of adventure. I'm a huge fan of Robert Zemeckis. I love his style of filmmaking and his attention to grandeur in costume design, production design. Mm. And I think he directs the camera and his actors really well in that space because he pushes the boundaries technically. And there's a lot to admire about that. And I just had a lot of fun and in comparing it to the original, and I'm, I'll just stand by my ground here, I did enjoy this more than the 1990. Mm. I think it offered a lot more in terms of character and narrative and, and an overall aesthetic. So I'm going to give this four popcorn kernels, Lee. Wow. Mm. It's been a while since I've yeah. generous, so generously rated a film, but I, I think it's definitely a film to go catch and it's in Australian cinemas on December 10. Yep, go see it. And don't forget to enter our giveaway, which we'll give you more details about a bit later on in the episode. Of course. So, Lee, you went and saw the Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart documentary? And this is the actually the very first feature-length documentary about the legendary Bee Gees, which is hard to believe, mm, isn't it? Mm. 
It chronicles the rise of the brothers Barry, Morris, and Robin Gibb, their music and its evolution over the years, and includes contemporary interviews with Barry Gibb, Eric Clapton, Mark Ronson, Noel Gallagher, Lulu, for some reason Nick Jonas, I'm keen to hear, understand why he might be in this documentary, Chris Martin, and Justin Timberlake. Yeah, it's directed by Frank Marshall, who is a longtime producer on Steven Spielberg projects, but in terms of directing mm. himself, he's directed movies like The Congo and Arachnophobia in the 90s, so very different films. You know, this is the first... I've got such shivers down my spine, even when you say that word. Just, I've seen the film and it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> so very, very different film, and he hasn't really done a documentary, a full-length documentary like this before. And I have to say, it shows in this documentary. Right. Now, the Bee Gees are fascinating. Okay. Really fascinating. A lot of people know their story already. Obviously, they were a band of three brothers who revolutionized the disco scene really in the 70s and 80s. But they were actually around a long time before that as a more ballad band, which I found really fascinating to learn. And they actually broke up when Robin left the band in 1969 for a long time. So this was before they hit their real all-time peak of popularity. Right. And now you mentioned all these people that are... (laughs) guesting in this documentary the thing is because they've all passed away not the guests the gibbs obviously (laughs) because the gibbs have all passed away with the exception of barry it's very hard to get any kind of new ground in this documentary which puts it on the back foot already i think now barry had some great insights but also because they're not around i think the director didn't dive deep enough into their story you didn't really Mm -hmm. get any kind of sense of what was going on behind the scenes to make them break up. I mean, they broke up twice, really, effectively, and and, and had to deal with, in the 70s, addiction. They lost their younger brother also due to complications from addiction. There was so much going on, and they really just barely scratched the surface on that kind of stuff, because maybe because Mm. they didn't have the material available to them, or maybe because, you know, the brothers have passed away and they didn't want to dig up old dirt, I guess. But, I mean, that makes you wonder, what was the point of this documentary? So you don't think Frank leveraged Barry Gibb enough as the surviving member of this group to really kind of read between the no. lines and look under, look behind the curtain? No. That's a shame. Did it feel more like a what inspires you as an artist today from the Bee Gees? You know, is that why they're talking to all these current artists? And Further to your question earlier about um, Nick Jonas, I think these kind of characters like Nick Jonas and Noel Gallagher in particular were brought in as talking points on what it's like to be brothers in a band. Oh, okay. That makes sense. But it is quite strange that it's like one brother, Nick Jonas. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That was a bit strange. But Noel and is it his brother, Joel? Is that the other Oasis? Liam. Is it Noel? Liam. They fucking hate each other. So don't they? <laughs> yeah. So like, do we really want to lean into their relationship as, as a no. brother duo band? No. That's right. Not, I mean, not very good. this documentary started as one thing being about the brothers and a documentary about the Bee Gees. And, but it kind of moves in the middle towards being more of a broader look at the emergence of the disco scene, which Mm-hmm. originally began um, in the gay underground club scene, right? And then when it became a bit more mainstream and the brothers Gibb sort of pushed it to that level, there was backlash because it was associated with the gay underground scene. So that was obviously a very tumultuous time in the 20th century. Mm. And then it became more about that rather than the brothers. And while that's a really interesting look at an era in general, 
it took it away from being about the brothers and their story and, you know, even though they were integral to that period in time. So did you kind of feel a little bit cheated by this documentary that you went in expecting one thing but got another and kind of felt like it was a bit, uh, you know, undercooked a bit? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's just, yeah, you go in Mm. expecting one thing and if you don't know the story of the Bee Gees, I mean, really, who doesn't know who they are? Mm. It's going to be, it's interesting. It is an interesting documentary. Don't get me wrong, but you'd want it to just dig that little bit deeper, give you a little bit more, give you something different that you don't know about them. Well, that's what the medium of documentary filmmaking is meant to do. It's meant to dig deeper and uncover something that you otherwise hadn't thought about Mm. or knew about a person or a subject. So yeah, it's a bit disappointing to hear that, but it seems like there was enough to enjoy in it regardless of those yeah. things. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a pretty run of the mill documentary as much about the rise and fall of disco as it is about the Bee Gees. I'm going to mm. give it two and a half popcorn kernels. Well, there we go. And Bee Gees How Can You Mend a Broken Heart is in cinemas from December 3. Now, before we launch into news, Lee, you mentioned this earlier in our episode, we wanted to remind you of our latest ticket giveaway. We are so excited to be offering up five double passes to see The Witches in Australian cinemas from December 10 and now reviewed by Popcorn Podcast. The movie is a reimagining of the Roald Dahl story and stars Anne Hathaway. Octavia Spencer and Stanley Tucci. To enter, all you have to do is head to the Popcorn Podcast Facebook or Instagram page. Make sure you like or follow it and drop a comment on the giveaway post tagging your coven of witches. Now, Lee, we've got some Deadpool 3 news. Talk us through this. I'm so excited. It's officially underway with script writers locked in and ready to begin. The Molyneux sisters of Bob's Burgers Emmy-winning fame will pen the screenplay. Do you watch Bob's Burgers? Not a lot, no. It's quite funny. It's one of those shows that is on my radar because a lot of my friends watch it and they're like, you've got to watch Bob's Burgers, Bob's Burgers. So anyway, maybe this is the, the time I'll, I'll actually watch something that's on mm. my list. You know, have you? everyone's got that <laughs> list, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll put it on my list. So uh, I digress. This is the first one under Disney's new ownership, but it is still expected to have an R rating and Ryan Reynolds has confirmed he is returning as the Merc with the Mouth, Wade Wilson. I think that's really important element that this movie remains R-rated, right? Yes, definitely. Otherwise it loses the whole vibe of this film. Yeah, the entire premise of it and what it's Mm. so beautifully offered the last two times. Now, an announcement has been made that Black Panther 2 will begin filming in July of 2021. There's still not a lot known about the direction of the story or how they're going to address the King T'Challa character after the sad passing of Chadwick Boseman recently, but Letitia Wright's Shuri is set to play a bigger role, the little sister, as expected. Yeah, I think that's a great way forward in this story, Mm. and I think she is primed and ready to take up that mantelpiece, so hopefully they are yeah, working that out and finding the best transition because it's uh, it's a bit messy mm. and it could be quite emotional as well. Yeah. I'm very intrigued how screenwriters and directors rework maybe a trajectory of a story that they originally had mm. in place, but then these things happen and they have to find a new way around it. So I'm very intrigued. And just practically as well, how they can address it. I mean, you, you just do a quick mention in the script or do you do Mm. what they did with star wars and use old footage and have him go off on an adventure or i don't know like it's it's so hard because these people are superheroes right Mm. the superhuman they've got incredible powers and we've just seen them fight you know in end game you know it's hard to kill these bastards so how how do you (laughs) how do you establish 
that they are no longer in this world without us actually being able to see it. So there's a big challenge on, on their hands. And make it believable, even more importantly. Yes, exactly. Now, there's a Predator reboot in the works. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Why? <laughs> So news about the fifth film in the franchise was supposed to be a surprise. Well, it would have fallen flat anyway. The director, Dan Trachenberg, put out a statement saying there were big plans of how this news was going to be revealed and that they had been working on the project for four years. Now, we recently had a Predator reboot. No, that was a spin-off, I think, the Alien vs. Predators ones? Or... Oh, no, there was another one. Oh. There was another one with the director of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. His name oh, is escaping mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He directed Iron Man 3. Yeah. Well, there's talk that this one's going to go back to the beginning of the story. So okay. it's going to be a bit more of a prequel reboot of sorts. But how disappointing is that if you've been working on something for four years and you have this big <laughs> grand plan of how you're going to announce it? I mean, now that Disney has this franchise too, were mm. they going to set the Predator loose in Disney World? <laughs> Stage an event? I don't know. But I would have been really interested to see how they announced it. Yeah, I mean, Predator takes over Tomorrowland. That would have been... I would have been front line for that. That would have been been fantastic. But what a shame, anyway. It is a bit of a shame. Now, the sequel that... A surprising sequel, but I believe the original film was quite successful. Mm. Boss Baby 2 is on its way. And in this sequel, the Templeton brothers are now adults who have drifted apart. Tim is a stay-at-home dad and Ted is a CEO. But a new Boss Baby is about to bring the brothers back together for a secret mission that will help them learn what truly matters what were your thoughts on this trailer and the whole premise around this i mean it looks quite fun they're following the formula of the first one for sure i just felt like it took them three quarters of the trailer to actually explain what the premise of the story was and i felt like i'd watched half the movie by the two minute mark in the trailer have you noticed that trailers now have trailers they have the little bit at the beginning that's like a little yes what's with that Hook you in, big loud bang, crash, don't go anywhere. We can only get your attention for five seconds. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's that struggle to get people's attention quickly because people are just swiping through yeah. stuff. So it's just a marketing strategy, but it's pretty fucking intense. <laughs> like it's just chaos. It's just noise and sound at you straight away so you don't go anywhere. <laughs> Perfect kids film. <laughs> Now, we finally found out who is replacing Johnny Depp in Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, number three, Mads Mikkelsen. What do you think about this casting news? I think he is a perfect piece of casting. Really? He plays a he plays a villain really, really well, and I think he's going to bring a lot to this role. He plays a villain really, really well, but does he have the charisma to be an old lover of Dumbledore? Do you know what I mean? Like, that tension that Johnny Depp and um, Jude Law had was actually quite good. You know, they played it separately. Mm. They hadn't quite met yet. But when they come together finally in these next movies, I'm sure it's going to happen. They're going to have to face each mm-hmm. other. I really just want to see that tension. Well, to be honest, and this this feels like it should be a whole other podcast episode, but I, I despise this franchise. I think it's a really <laughs> weak, awful story. Yeah. And so I honestly don't care. I, I just think mm. because I don't believe them as characters in, in this series yeah. and that they were ex-lovers and da-da-da-da. But I'm, I'm excited for his casting yeah. anyway. I think 
hopefully he brings what you're what you are hoping needs to be brought to the character i think the first film started off really promisingly and then it just went off the rails in the last film i completely agree with you there it just went sideways and upside down and like what are you doing jk rowling yeah it was such a mess a hot mess but not in a good way Mm. anyway one (laughs) suggestion that was put forward was that colin farrell might reprise his role but he's currently tied up with the batman i would have loved to have seen colin farrell in that role 100 percent. sign me up that would have been big fat tick from me anyway what a shame oh well so we got the trailer for the live action clifford the big red dog which is based on the popular children's book clifford has been a kid's favorite since the 1960s when it was first published by scholastic this was a cute tiny little like 30 second teaser trailer wasn't it we have to talk about the elephant in the room or the giant dog in the room but what did you think (laughs) about the design is this going to be another paramount nightmare with you know like sonic he was very red and like i get it he's the big red dog but there was something odd about the color oh yes i'm gonna agree with you i think it's he wasn't red enough it was like he just accidentally fell into some food dye So you thought he wasn't red enough. I think he's a too deep a red and he's not bright enough. Yeah. Oh, God. We're getting really nitpicky, aren't we? We're discussing the shade of red on the dog. But also that he wasn't <laughs> big enough. Clifford the Big Red Dog is meant to be the size of a house. That dog, compared to the other dogs, was mm. barely double their size. Do you think that that little teaser was just him as a puppy? He seemed very puppy-like. Maybe. So we're going to see him grow into a bigger dog in the film. Well, perhaps. Because you're right, he's meant to be the size of a house. Otherwise, the internet fandom is going to bully Paramount into redoing the film, just like they did with Sonic. (laughs) Not again. (laughs) All right, when can we expect Clifford the Big Red Dog? Oh, we don't know yet, but it'll be coming to cinemas probably next year or year after. Or if you have to redesign the dog, it'll be a bit longer. (laughs) (laughs) Watch this space. All right, Lee. Well, that is another jam-packed episode of Popcorn Podcast. We reviewed Roald Dahl's The Witches, Mm -hmm. as directed by Robert Zemeckis, and also Bee Gees' How to Mend a Broken Heart documentary. And The Witches is out in Australian cinemas on December 10, and the Bee Gees' How Can You Mend a Broken Heart is in cinemas from December 3. Plenty of good cinema to catch, guys. Well, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Come and join us in the conversation on Facebook. Like our page at Popcorn Podcast AU and follow us on Instagram at Popcorn Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think about these movies.